You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 41, for May 3rd, 2009. Warning, this episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. What is this? I hear you saying, why is this episode dropping a week early? Well, because I got the completed files from Clippy on Wednesday, which is way earlier than I think we've ever gotten an episode pulled together. So I put out on the Twitter feed whether people wanted to see the new feedback show next or the last chapter. And guess what people picked? (laughs) After the chapter, we're going to go straight into the credits, and then we're going to end the episode there without any outro chatter. So I want to take the moment here to thank each and every person who has helped to make the Metamore City podcast a success in this first season that has turned out to be a year and a half long. (laughs) Uh, That would include all of my voice actors, my production team, all of the people who've helped to refine my understanding of podcasting and production over the last couple of years, Dan Sawyer and Kitty Nakian for their continued presence in the feedback shows and for just being a couple of the best friends that a guy could ask for. And most importantly, each and every one of you. Because if you guys weren't listening and commenting and telling me about how much you guys were enjoying this show, what would be the point, really? I mean, writers live for feedback. We live to know that our stories that we're sharing means something to somebody else that we're touching other people's lives and having an impact there and I've gotten so many messages from you guys over the last couple years telling me about how much of an impact Metamore City has had on your lives and when I hear that somebody has been moved to tears by something I've written or that they're hanging on the edge of their seat to find out how a cliffhanger ends or that they're angry with something that a character did because they've just been able to forget for a few minutes that that character is not a real person. Let that suspension of disbelief take over and get into the heart of the story and make it a part of their lives. Now, those are the moments that writers live for. And you guys have given me a lot of great moments over the last couple years. And I am looking forward to continuing to give you guys more and more excitement, adventure, drama, comedy, romance, horror, all of the stuff that makes storytelling so fun and so rewarding. There's a lot more stories to tell in the world of Metamore City, and I can't wait to bring them to you guys. But before that happens, there's going to be the Summer Story Contest. Now remember, this story contest is ending at the end of May. So be sure to get in all of your stories for that contest by May 31st. Again, I'm looking for stories between 1,000 and 6,000 words taking place in the world of Metamore City, and ideally focusing on relatively small stories with a focus on character development and maybe fleshing out some corners of the world that we haven't seen before. If you have any questions about whether a particular idea that you have in mind will work for Metamore City or not, 
please email me and ask me, and I will be happy to give you guys guidance. Just make sure that you get your stories in on time, and the one that I like the best, the author will get a Metamorph City t-shirt of their choice. And all of the ones that I like will get to be featured on the podcast during the Summer Interregnum. I've already got about half a dozen people who've said that they're interested in writing stories for the contest, and hopefully we'll get some more. And I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with. All right then, folks, I'm not going to keep you guys in suspense any longer. Here it is, the final chapter of Making the Cut. Chapter 31 Fiona never saw Miriam Bakhtivar again. By the time she returned to the terrace balcony, the sun had long since risen in a clear blue winter sky, and all that remained was the makeshift stake. Any ashes from her destruction had been driven away by the wind. Perhaps that was for the best. Fiona hated goodbyes. Her subsequent mission to Miriam's apartment turned up all of the Elder's thralls, save one. The Seneschal, Seralina Greyhaven, had dropped off the others a few hours before dawn and then disappeared. She hadn't told anyone where she was going, but she'd taken clothes, food, and Miriam's sizable discretionary cash reserves along with her, so it was unlikely that she'd committed suicide or gone back to the vampires. Fiona hoped that the woman could find a new life for herself, preferably somewhere far away from Metamore City. Sasha's body was laid to rest in her hometown with full ecclesiast honors, in accordance with her family's wishes. Fiona, Brian, and Rebecca were a bit vague with the priest about their relationship to the deceased, and her relatives had the decency to avoid any unnecessary clarifications. Danny and Abby went with them for the service, holding tightly to Rebecca and Fiona's hands respectively. After the coffin had been lowered into the grave, Fiona placed a bouquet of flowers atop it, roses of deep crimson for mourning, surrounded by myrtle blossoms for love in absence. The priest spoke a final prayer and then released a white dove, which circled high into the air before flying off into the west. That was really nice, Sasha said to Fiona as she and Abby made their way back to the rented ground car. I always wanted to see my own funeral. Despite herself, Fiona let out a quiet laugh. <laughs> you would. Abby gripped her hand. Now that it's done, I should really get back into our gestalt. It's getting hard to hold our thoughts separate like this. Fiona stopped, looking back at the gravesite. Tears rose unbidden to her eyes, and she wiped them away, frustrated. It isn't the same. No, it isn't. Sasha agreed gently. But that doesn't mean it's bad. Just because we call ourselves Abby doesn't mean that there's none of me in there. I know. 
Fiona turned back and ran a gentle hand down the side of Abby's face. But I miss your eyes. The ones that saw beauty in me when no one else did. Abby's brown eyes sparkled mischievously with a very Sasha-like expression. Are you getting sentimental on me, lover? After all these years? Fiona chuckled ruefully. (laughs) It serves you right for opening up my heart like you did. There was a long pause. Then Fiona added, almost timidly, This is the last time, isn't it? Our last time together, just the two of us. Abby smiled. I wouldn't bet on it. A part of me left the day my body died, love. Probably the most important part. And I've got a feeling she'll be waiting for us on the other side, where the father makes all things new. She embraced Fiona and kissed her then, and the passion was familiar, even if the scent of her was not. When they parted, Abby smiled at her, and the aura behind those eyes was united once more. Goodbye, my love. And hello. Fiona smiled back through her tears, as a saying of her mother's came afresh to her mind. Merry meet, and merry part, and merry meet again. Where Sasha's funeral had been extravagant, with nearly the whole town and many from Metamore City coming to pay their respects, the service for Darla was small and private, attended by five mourners and the Mariahist priestess who conducted the ceremony. The child's ashes were laid to rest in a hive-owned cemetery in the upper levels of the city, surrounded by trees and well-tended gardens. The place would be breathtaking in the spring, but for now everything was still and quiet which suited the mood of the service. Sasha's funeral had carried with it the air of a hero's sacrifice, a life given honorably in defense of the helpless. Darla's grave spoke of dead hopes and lost dreams. Abby wept silent tears as she ran her fingertips over the letters on the headstone, then buried her face in her hands. Fiona knelt beside her, her hand on the younger woman's shoulder, silently offering her strength. Later, as they rode back toward home, Abby surprised them all by speaking up. They don't all rest in peace, you know. Danny turned and quirked an eyebrow at her. What do you mean, Abs? Abby nodded back in the direction they'd come. A lot of headstones say, rest in peace. But they don't. Not all of them. Some of them. A lot of them linger. Rebecca leaned forward, her eyes wide. Ghosts? But I thought there was no such thing. The Lightbringers say it can't happen. Abby shook her head emphatically. They're lying. Or just wrong. I don't know what it is, but being inside my... I mean, Sasha's head when she died, it did something to me. I can see things now that I couldn't before. The people who are stuck in between. Fiona's brows drew together. How many... Abby shrugged. I'm not sure. A lot of them anyway. They need help. And can you? Help them, I mean? Abby looked out the window, her jaw setting in determination. I don't know yet, but I'm going to try. December 21st, 1995, Christos Reckoning. Metamore City Police Department. Precinct 9, Headquarters. 
A knock sounded at the door to Jared's office. Come in, he said, without enthusiasm. The door pushed open and Corporal Catherine Catane elbowed her way inside, balancing two trays of beverages between her hands and chin. Coffee's here. She sounded disgustingly cheerful for this early in the morning. The narcotics detective wasn't quite a rookie anymore, but she still had that eager-to-please puppy-dog enthusiasm that Jared found so exhausting to be around. He held one of the trays for Katane while she carefully extracted his beverage from the other, setting it on the desk in front of him. There you go. Donuts are on Marcy's desk if you want any. Thank you, Corporal, Jared said politely. I may wander out in a few minutes. All right, but you'd better hurry if you want any of the Yule Logs. They only had six of them today. Duly noted. Jared turned away and looked out the window, watching the falling snow outside. He heard the door swing open, then an unexpectedly long pause before it shut again. You all right, sir? Jared glanced back over his shoulder. Katane was still in the room, and her eyes showed honest concern. He bit back his first reply. She doesn't know. How could she? No, Corporal. No, I'm really not all right. Her lip twitched upward in sympathy. I feel you. The long night can get to you sometimes, especially in our job. Sometimes it feels like we spend our whole lives in darkness. Jared nodded silent agreement, though his personal long night had nothing to do with the winter solstice. Six months. Six months since she left me. Damn it. Where did I go wrong? A gentle hand gripped his shoulder. Hey, just remember this is the turning point. I know it's dark now, but every day after this one, the light shines just a little bit brighter. A little bit longer. It may not look it, but summer's on the way. She gave him a wry smile. You can take that as a metaphor if it helps. Involuntarily, Jared felt himself smile a little in return. Thanks, Corporal. Maybe it will. She gave him a quick, informal salute, touching the tips of her fingers to one side of her forehead, then left to continue her delivery service. Jared looked back out the window and imagined that he could see the face of Danny in the swirling snow beyond. Every day the light shines just a little brighter. Danny hadn't left him much reason to believe in that, but there was something. A single, solitary glimmer of light in the midst of his personal darkness. While Danny had left the ring, she had kept the locket. Someday, my love, he whispered, gazing out at the darkness of early morning. The sun would rise soon, painting the city in brilliant white. Some way, somehow, come back to me. Malcolm Ardvalos read through the report with a sense of quiet disappointment. Even after two weeks of diligent searching by the best seers in his organization, there was still no sign of Miriam Bakhtavar. Well, there's nothing for it. It appears that the telepaths destroyed her after all, sentimentality notwithstanding. Never thought they'd go through with it, Braddock grumbled, stalking around the perimeter of the white room. Dark mother, she was their own blood. Bunch of fucking bigots is what they are. I would not rush to disagree with you. Still, it's not as if it was a total loss. She was a rarity in the collective, an elder who was willing to get her hands dirty. He reached over to the chessboard sitting on the coffee table and picked up one of the pieces. At the very least, 
we have removed their queen from the board. That's worth a little sacrifice. Braddock made a frustrated sound in the back of his throat, then spun and grabbed the back of the sofa, leaning forward to gaze almost pleadingly at Malcolm. Let me go after them. Summers and the rest of that bunch of misfits, let me show them what happens when they cross us. You mean besides the embarrassing flinching and cowering? Malcolm chuckled. Braddock stared at him blankly. Malcolm sighed. (sighs) Never mind. No, Braddock, you may not turn this into a blood feud with the telepaths. We have tweaked their, ah, collective noses enough for one year. Any more and you risk turning this into open war. And that is bad for business, as I have repeatedly sought to drill into that ever-excitable head of yours. He smirked. Besides which, I have a suspicion that the Summer Cell may do more to unravel the Hive's solidarity than anything we could accomplish. Braddock frowned deeply at that, but he bowed his head, acquiescing. And what about Miriam Seneschal? You want us to hunt her down? Malcolm picked up a pawn and eyed it thoughtfully. After a long moment's consideration, he sighed. (sighs) No, I think not. Miss Greyhaven proved herself more capable than I would have expected, given the condition in which I handed her over to Miriam. But ultimately, she's harmless. Why not kill her anyway? You said it yourself. She knows too much. Malcolm sniffed. Without her mistress to inspire her, she'll be lucky to remember to put on shoes, much less pose any threat to us. Besides, our Dark Mother smiles on those who survive in the face of overwhelming odds. If she can overcome what we did to her and regain even the semblance of a normal life, she deserves our respect. Braddock showed a little smile, the one that said he thought Malcolm was getting soft in the head in his advanced years. Whatever you say, boss. What's next? Next is laying the groundwork for future endeavors, Malcolm said, setting down the pawn. A good number of our long-term goals require a certain compliance from the local constabulary, which has not heretofore been present. It is time to begin finding likely tools within the realm of law enforcement. Braddock grinned. Double agents, eh? Sneaky. Who'd you have in mind? Malcolm picked up a stack of personnel files lying on the desk. The top new graduates from the Empire University School of Medicine. He opened the top file and passed it to Braddock. A photo of a striking, raven-haired young woman peered out above the name Morgan Elizabeth Drowling. Tell me, Braddock, how much do you know about forensic medicine? December 24th, 1995, Christos Reckoning, Westfall Academy. Danny felt an odd sensation of deja vu as she stood outside Clayman Auditorium with Brian, Fiona, Rebecca, and Abby. Are they taking longer than usual in there, or is it just me? Fiona checked her watch. One hour, three minutes, and counting. Abby grinned. This time it's not just you. The grin looked a bit forced, though, and Danny suspected that the younger Teep was just as nervous as she was. After all, the two of them had the most to lose if this idea didn't fly. Brian came over and put a hand on both women's shoulders. This will work, he said encouragingly. We'll go it alone if we have to, but I don't think it'll come to that. 
Just hang together and keep showing them a united front. The door to the auditorium opened. A grim-faced elder waited on the other side, and without a word they were escorted back into the presence of the assembled hive. The faces were all notably blank, as usual, but Danny thought that she detected an air of uncertainty in the room, something that she had rarely seen when the hive was together, especially not after their deliberations were concluded. The hive spoke, projecting its unified voice into their minds. We have reached a decision on the case of Danielle Phoenix Sharabi. Danny swallowed, then said, Yes? Upon reviewing the evidence and the testimony of those involved, it is our judgment that Danielle is not culpable for the deaths of Del Matthews and Trace Barra. Danny felt a sudden weight lift off of her as her breath rushed out in a sigh of relief. While Daniel Shrabi was guilty of poor judgment and attempting to withhold funds from the Collective, he had no way to know that he was working for the Vampire Syndicate. Once he learned the truth, he attempted to make amends by giving the ill-gotten funds to his friend's widow. This shows an honest spirit and a deep loyalty to the values of the Collective. Danny hid a smile. Naturally, the Hive glossed over the fact that they had opposed helping Josephine Matthews at the time, At least they had finally realized that they were being petty and vindictive about the whole thing. There is also the added complication of Daniel Shirabi's existence as a personality distinct from Daniel. As a new person, a majority of us believe that she should not be held culpable for Daniel's actions prior to her creation. To punish Daniel along with Daniel would be unjust, and would do no good to the long-term health of this hive. Translation Danny thought, privately. They don't want to throw away a new potential mother. Or a potential role model, either. If Daniel and I manage to start a trend, it could get rid of this whole surplus male problem they've been dealing with for decades. That was, indeed, a factor in our decision. Danny blushed and reined in her thoughts a bit tighter. Apparently, they hadn't been that private. In summation, then. We have decided that Daniel Shirabi is to be welcomed into the Hive as a breathing member, with all accompanying rights and privileges. Danny bowed. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. I will do my best to serve the Hive faithfully. Which brings us to your second request. Brian Summers, you and your surviving cellmates have asked for Danielle Shirabi and Abby Preston to be admitted into your breeding cell. Are you fully committed to this request? The presence of the Daniel persona will affect the dynamics of your cell's gestalt, most likely in ways that none of us can anticipate. And Abby Preston is no longer fertile. Brian raised his chin a bit higher. We are aware of both of those factors, but we consider them to be assets, not liabilities. Daniel's love for Rebecca has been a source of strength for them both and an inspiration to the rest of us. Abby is prepared to give her time and effort to care for all of our family's children even if she isn't their birth mother. And besides, it's only her womb that's infertile. Her eggs could still be harvested and carried to term by a surrogate. And three guesses as to who the first candidate will be. You present reasonable arguments. We can sense your dedication to this path. But many of us are uneasy at such a radical departure from the established methods of the Hive. Methods that have played a great role in our survival. If you're... Exuberant individuality should spread within the hive, and your methods then prove to be unsuccessful. 
It could throw our entire social model into chaos. Danny felt her heart lurch. The hive, as a rule, was not given to hyperbole. If they said it could be that bad, they really believed it. Uh Uh-oh. The elder who had led them inside held up a hand. However, the hive went on, we do not wish to discard out of hand a potentially useful innovation. Successful evolution of a species or a society requires that allowance be made for mutations, variations from the norm. We do not wish to see our society survive the mundanes and the vampires, and then perish due to stagnation. Therefore, we have a counteroffer. Danny and her friends exchanged a look. And that is? Brian asked, carefully. Partial autonomy for the summer's cell. In essence, you would become a testbed for these interesting but potentially risky variations in the breeding cell structure. You would still receive the full protection of the hive's defenses, and full access to collective health care and other benefits. Your children would still be allowed to join the Westfall creche. In exchange, however, you would be restricted from entering full gestalt with the hive in assembly, and you would be required to make regular reports to us on your experiment. If, at any time, the model should be deemed a failure, your autonomy would be revoked, and the cell reconstituted under more traditional lines. Please note that you would also be responsible for keeping your cell fiscally solvent. A failure to produce a net gain in revenue will be seen as a failure of the model. Danny's eyes widened. She looked to Rebecca, then Brian, then back to the hive. So, in other words, you're going to give us enough rope to hang ourselves with. A ripple of amusement ran through the group mind. Perhaps. Or perhaps he will stumble upon something that benefits us all. Either way, Danielle Sharabi, it serves the good of our community to keep you somewhat close, since you are all bent on pursuing this course regardless of our recommendations. Fiona smirked. But only somewhat close. Just so, the Hive agreed. Do you accept our offer? Brian called the others into a circle. Any thoughts on the fiscal side, Fee? Fiona closed her eyes for a moment. Potentially difficult, but achievable. Much will depend on what Abby is able to contribute. She has Sasha's memories, but no formal training. I've got some ideas about that. I'll need to talk to you about the details, but I'm thinking freelance work. Dicey, but it pays well when you can get it. All right. Who's willing to give this a shot? He put his hand into the middle of the circle. One by one, the others followed suit, until they all had their hands piled atop one another. Danny grinned. Go Warriors. (laughs) The hive adjourned, and the five members of the summer cell walked out into the bright, chill light of a December afternoon. Abby turned her face skyward, letting the sunlight fall across her face. It's funny. Part of me thinks it's strange that I finally have a family again, after being an outsider for so long. And part of me says that this is normal, the way things are supposed to be. I know the feeling. Danny came up alongside her and took her hand. Daniel and I spent so long trying to find a place where we belonged, and then we found it in a place where we weren't really looking for it. She grinned. It's like busting your ass to make the cut for the team, and then finding out you've been scouted for a completely different sport. Rebecca hooked her arm through Danny's on her other side. 
Are we ever going to get you off those sports analogies? Fiona slid in beside Abby, putting a hand on her shoulder. She gave Rebecca a wry look. She's half male. I wouldn't get my hopes up. Rebecca rolled her eyes and gave an exaggerated sigh. (sighs) Oh well, I guess none of us are what you'd call perfect. That's right, Brian said, as he took Rebecca and Fiona's hands to complete the circle. And us imperfect people have got to stick together. You've been listening to Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and performed by Chris Lester, produced by Chris Lester, edited by Paulette Jackson, Scott Roche, and Bill Bowman. In order of appearance, this podcast novel featured the voice talents of Heather Nowak as Abby Preston, Bill Bowman as Victor Hincavos, Chris Lester as Daniel Sharabi, Brian Watson as Brian Summers and Artax, Danny Cutler as Sasha King, Christiana Ellis as Fiona Hinconnell, MANPA as Rebecca Brower, Dante Taylor as Trey Sumbara, Nobilis Reed as Del Matthews, PG Holyfield as Kevin Darby, Heather Welliver as Stacy Sharabi and Catherine Katane, Steve Ely as Nathan Levy, T. Morris as Evan Salindi, Philippa Ballantyne as Ava Salindi, Beck Viper as Callie Linder, Leanne Mabry as announcer number one, Indiana Jim as the crew chief, Paulette Vallad as police officer number one, and Lysa. Martha Puskas as Miriam Bakhtivar. J.C. Hutchins as William Westerson. P.C. Herring as priest number one. Jessica Shero as Josephine Matthews. Sarah Lloyd as Danny Sharabi. Jason Adams as Jared Tamlin. Steve Rickyberg as Peter. Pawari Nan as Lindy and receptionist number one. David Moore as Doctor Number One, Paul Fisher as the Night Watchman, Emma Rollin as Announcer Number Two, Chris Miller as Egan Hunter, Edmund Boys as Mackey, Kevin Batchelder as the Surly Night Manager, Mark Bailey as Braddock, TD0013 as Malcolm Ardvalos. Kimmy Alexander as Seralina Greyhaven. Scott Roche as Timothy Metropolis. Cunning Minx as Dr. Julian. Mindy Smith as Fiona's mother. T. Reed's girl as young Fiona. Andrea Martin as Sarah. Paulette Jackson as Miriam Bakhtivar understudy. Mark Smith as police officer number two. J. Daniel Sawyer as Isaac and Kim Fortuner as Morgan Drowling. The Metamore City theme music was created by Metaverse. Additional music provided by music.podshow.com, magnatune.com, davidbeardmusic.com, freesound.org, and the Internet Archive, used by permission. All other music was provided by digitaljuice.com and is used under paid license. Sound effects were provided by freesound.org, soundsnap.com, and digitaljuice.com. 
Additional Foley and effects work performed by Chris Lester. This audio adaptation of Making the Cut was recorded and mixed in Metamore Studios in Berkeley, California, and in Metamore Studios Midwest in Detroit, Michigan. Both the recording and the novel are copyright 2007 to 2009 by Chris Lester. The Metamore City World setting is adapted from and inspired by Metamore Keep, which was created in 1997 by Kevin Copernicus Dinahan. Metamore Keep and its characters, situations, and settings are held in joint copyright by the writers of the Metamore Keep story universe and administered by Christian O'Kane. For more information about Metamore Keep, please visit metamorekeep.com. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. The author grants permission to freely distribute and create derivative works based on this recording, provided that attribution is paid to its creators, and that the terms of this license are applied equally to all such derivative works. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org. The author wishes to thank all those who have contributed to reading, editing, and polishing this manuscript, including Mystic, Tavon, Cubist, Jury Jaden, Ricks, Christy Davis, Interloper23, Christy Devlin, Carol Franklin, Anna Ray, Ann Zanoni, Freon, M. Keaton, and Brian Watson. Very special thanks to Paulette Jackson without whose tireless efforts this podcast would never have been completed on schedule. This novel is dedicated to my dear friends, Brian Watson and Sarah Lloyd. Though far from me in distance, you are never far from my thoughts. This concludes Volume 1 of the Metamore City Podcast. Stay subscribed to this feed for Volume 2, beginning on September 9th, 2009. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Epilogue. She floated in a sea of darkness, infinite and endless. She felt nothing, saw nothing, heard nothing. Her body had the perfect stillness of the grave. But while her ears could no longer hear, her mind remained closely attuned to the other minds nearby. There were two of them, one well-guarded and full of the wisdom of years, the other shining brightly with the passionate devotion of youth. She knew them both and loved them, one from a time long years past, the other from shared hardships in her recent personal hell. She listened with her thoughts as they argued back and forth. I don't like leaving her like this. You would prefer that we released her? Sent her back to the Master after she failed him? No, of course not. It's just... 
Can't you do something for her? The only way to free her is to kill the sire. So why don't you? <sighs> My killing days are over, child. Braddock's days are numbered, make no mistake. But I won't have a hand in ending them. There was a pause. I can keep her hidden away in stasis until he's gone. And how long will that be? A few years at most. Braddock is too careless to survive much longer than that. The Lightbringers are just waiting for him to give them an excuse. Be patient, child. You're young yet, and you have a lot of years ahead of you. Reluctantly, the younger mind acquiesced. Suppose you're right. The aura drew nearer then, and through the young one's own eyes, she saw her bend low, planting a tender kiss on a cold gray brow. Good night, mistress. Rest now. And when you wake again, you will be free. They withdrew then, the young mind and the old one leaving together. She felt their thoughts grow distant, then cut off abruptly as though a door had been drawn shut. Then, nothing.
be 